Our text this afternoon is Revelation 20, the verses 7 through 10. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil, who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. After the sermon, let's sing together hymn 41, stanzas 1 and 2. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we dealt with Revelation 20, the verses 1 through 6, where we learned about the millennium. That's a thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. We understand that it's a difficult passage and has been grossly misunderstood for the last 2,000 years by many. But when we approach it in the context of the entire book of Revelation, we understand that this is prophecy. It's called apocalyptic prophecy, which means it's a heightened form of prophecy that uses visions and symbols. That we understand that the thousand years is symbolic for the reign of Christ that began by his resurrection from the dead when he overpowered Satan, sin, and death and bound Satan for the rest of the thousand years so that Christ could gather, defend, and preserve his church from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And the thousand years will come to an end when Christ is ready to return and all the elect have been gathered in. So we are living in the thousand years. We are living in a time where we know Christ is the Alpha and the Omega And in him we are more than conquerors. And even if we die, death does not separate us from Christ, but we saw that that we come to life and we are with Christ in heaven and we reign with him there until the end of the thousand years. Christ is our King. He's our Lord, our Savior for body and soul in life and in death. Now in our text this afternoon, we will look at what happens when the thousand years come to their appointed end. Christ will return. And he will return to inaugurate the final age, the new heavens and new earth, where we will dwell forever with God and every tear will be wiped away from our eyes. But now we read this disturbing, chilling detail. Satan will be released from his prison. We wonder what that means. Does that mean we're going to be persecuted? When Satan is released, are we going to lose our jobs, our homes, be thrown into prison? When we walk along the street, will people throw stones at us and chunks of wood at us? Will we be mocked and harangued at every turn of our lives? Brothers and sisters, when we look at our passage this afternoon, basically what is being said to us is calm down, chill, take it easy. 
when you really understand what's being said here, you will gladly deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. Understand well, brothers and sisters, the end is coming near. We might very well be living in the time where Satan is going to be released or he has been released already. Christ could be here any day. We have to be people of faith, people of vision, people with a world and life view that we understand what's going on in history, what's happening in our world. Where is our place in relationship to the world and in relationship to our Lord Jesus Christ? And how when we see that clearly, then there's indeed nothing that can separate us from God's love and there are all kinds of opportunities for the advancement of the kingdom of heaven. We'll look at that under this theme. At the end of the thousand years, Jesus Christ releases Satan from his prison. We'll see three things. Satan deceives and gathers the nations. Satan besieges the beloved city. Jesus Christ throws Satan into the lake of burning sulfur. Now, we read in the opening of our text that when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth. There are no surprises there for us. We anticipated this. We knew it. We heard it this morning. We heard in our text this morning that when our Lord Jesus Christ gained the victory, then he bound Satan. But then we read there that was to keep Satan from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. So we knew Satan would be released. We knew that at the end of the thousand years, he would be set free. And we understand that when he's set free, he's not set free as some reformed, ancient creature who no longer has any energy left. He is a roaring light. This is a dragon. This is an enormous red dragon. He is out for blood. He is out to annihilate the church of Jesus Christ. We are looking at a horrendous opponent. Somebody who hates us, who hates Jesus and the gospel and the whole church. Now everybody who reads that, we who hear that this afternoon, we're going to say, Lord Jesus, what are you thinking? What in the world are you up to? We had it made. You had Satan bound. You're gathering, defending, and preserving your church. Why not just quietly usher in the final age when you return and take us into the new Jerusalem? Why does Satan have to be released? Why do we have to endure this horrible final days of vicious attack by Satan and by the world that he deceives? Those are legitimate questions. And we have very real concerns. But of course, there are a few things that we need to keep in mind. We know that Jesus is very smart. He's wise. He's good. He's kind. And he's righteous. And he is in absolute control. Even the release of Satan, that's something that he does. He releases Satan. We also understand that he does this at the end of the thousand years, which means that at this point, everyone for whom Jesus died, all the elect, have been brought to faith in Jesus Christ. 
and he will continue to protect them. And so we understand that Jesus Christ has good reasons for doing what he does. And we have to very soberly, very respectfully, you know, with, with full appreciation for Jesus Christ, say, why are you doing that? What good can come from it? What we need to understand, brothers and sisters, is that when our Lord Jesus Christ returns in the clouds of heaven, his return will be a catastrophic splitting down of the line of the entire human race. He said back in Matthew that when I come, I will put the sheep on the one side, the goats on the other. The sheep, the believers, go to everlasting glory. The goats, the unbelievers, Satan and the rest, they go to hell where they will weep and gnash their teeth eternally. The last day of the world, our Lord Jesus Christ will draw the line in the sands of time and there will be an eternal separation. As that day draws near, there are to be no gray areas. There are not to be people sitting on the fence wondering whether they are for Jesus or against Him. Jesus Christ will push it. He will push the envelope He will make it so that everybody knows clearly in his or her own mind, am I for Jesus or against him? And the release of Satan, the tension, the persecution will make crystal clear that those who never love Jesus will abandon him. But those who do love him, even in the tough times, they will deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow Jesus. It will be a difficult and challenging time. But we will also look at the world that does not believe. We'll know where they're going. But we'll also be very clear in our mind that in these difficult days, we place our faith in Jesus Christ alone. It is precisely when the persecution becomes intense and the difference becomes like night and day that we see Jesus Christ so clearly. More important than anything else we ever loved, money, health, Free society, more important than anything else, is I know Jesus and I cling to him. Even in the difficult times, knowing that the day will come, he will wipe away the tears from our eyes. Now this should make a grave impression upon us, brothers and sisters. We have entered, we are entering very difficult times. Attacks by Satan, deception by Satan, by people that we know. The thing is, those people are going to hell. And do we not have an ounce of compassion in our hearts, even for the people who persecute us? It could be the person you work with every day or sit beside in school. It could be your neighbor. It could be somebody at the gym. It could be your own brother. It could be your own child who has denied Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And we say to ourselves, you know, in many respects, they're they're doing okay. My child's doing okay. My, My brother's doing okay, financially well set, in a good marriage. Everything seems to be going well. But you know, if they don't believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if they don't deny themselves, take up their cross and follow Jesus, you know they are in a different eternal path than you are. So even if they hate your faith, 
even if your brother or your neighbor is persecuting you or trying to seduce you into sin, have a heart. Speak of the hope that is within you. Share the good news of Jesus Christ. Become an instrument in the hands of the Redeemer. Maybe Jesus Christ will use you to break through the barrier of unbelief. On the one hand, we'll be suffering. But the very people who hate the gospel and are persecuting you, their lives are so empty. It is so barren. And they're going to everlasting torment. We have something to show them. And that is the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. So precisely in times of temptation and persecution, when the battle lines are clearly drawn, it's a time to stand up for Jesus and to show the faith that we have, the hope that is in us. Now, when Satan is released, what he will attempt or what he will be permitted to engage in is a massive propaganda throughout the world. Satan's release means he goes to the four corners of the earth and reaches people everywhere and deceives them into thinking that Jesus is not Lord and Savior and people should not be following him. But not only will he deceive them so that they say, Jesus, forget about him, but he will so turn their minds that they become angry against Jesus and his church and, in fact, start to think of persecution which could be physical, emotional, financial, whatever. And here, our text uses the image of Gog and Magog. Now, we know something about that because we read Ezekiel 38 together. And Ezekiel 38, Ezekiel is prophesying of a day that Gog, the prince of Magog, will assemble the nations around about and come to attack the church of God viciously. Now, the Jews in the Old Testament believe that this prophecy was fulfilled around 150, 165 B.C. in the time of the Maccabees when Antiochus Epiphanes came to Jerusalem and did a terrible desecration of the temple. But now Gog and Magog of the Old Testament becomes a metaphor or an example of what's going to happen at the end of history when throughout the world... Nations will be mustered, they will be assembled, and they will come to attack the church of Jesus Christ. We're not talking here about in the past the church thought maybe this would be the Chinese, or nowadays there are people who say we think that this is Islam. Understandably, Islam is attacking the church. But our text is not identifying one nation or one specific people, but it's talking about end of times when worldwide there will be a massive hostility and attack by the world against the church. That begs the question, could we be anywhere near this time that Satan is released? Or could we actually be in that time already? Do you think that Satan has been released? Do you think that he is mustering the world in deception and attack against the church? It's entirely possible. Of course, depending on where you live in the world, it can be more severe in some places than in others. Last Sunday morning, when I preached this sermon, there was a man from Africa visiting. There's a man who has lived and worked in Africa many years. And he says, you have no idea just how broken down society is throughout Africa and how much hostility there is against Christians. 
Having heard this, this passage on, on Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10, I very much believe, as a white man living in Africa, seeing what's going on all around, I believe that Satan has been loosed. And also, anyone who is at least my age and can look back 50 years will recognize that North American society has definitely gone from a Christian to a post-Christian culture. I still remember as a five-year-old boy, every Sunday it was a day of rest. People in my neighborhood all went to some church, some worship service. We only had public school at the time, and every morning began with, with Bible reading and prayer and an explanation of the Bible service. Marriage was held in high honor. Nobody talked about divorce or, or abortion. Strong morals. In some places, if you use God's name in vain publicly, you could get a fine for it. But how times have changed. A time of liberalism, humanism, pluralism. A time of breakdown of marriage and morals. And people look at the Church of Jesus Christ as one of the most ridiculous and stupid things on the face of this earth. People say, why belong to a church? Waste of space. Not good for the green footprint of Canada. Get rid of those churches with all their air conditioning and heating and let people just stay stay home. Brothers and sisters, we are living in a time of gross immorality. And our young people and our children and all of us are being seduced constantly to immorality, to addictions, and to godlessness. And people are being persecuted, lose their jobs, being drawn into court, human rights commissions, because they dare to say something about sexuality or marriage in this country. There is gross deception, and there's mounting hostility against the Church of Jesus Christ, even in our land and our society. We could say, how terrible is that? How terrible to be living in Canada today with, with all the godlessness and deception that is, that is all around us. And we understand why that is. We understand that Jesus said, these days would come. I will draw the line in the sand and we will see who is for me and who is against me. But now, brothers and sisters, when you hear these things, don't let them be facts that simply caress your mind and slip away to disappear in the vapor of the world that's around you. Now you stop, and you listen, and you think about these things, and develop a world view and vision that understands your place as a Christian here in this world. Know that we are under attack, perhaps more so than ever before. Stand on guard, but also realize that we have a golden opportunity. Because when we talk about the deception and godlessness of our nation, think of all those poor, poor people living in darkness, without God, without hope, without a belief that there's something beyond death. We have something to share. This is not the time to draw in our defenses and to become hermits. But deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow Jesus. Be a light to the world around us. That brings us to our second point, And here we're dealing with verse 9. 
They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them. So now we're talking about Gog, Magog, the nations, the kings of the earth, assembling to attack the church of Jesus Christ. It's not the first time we heard of this in the book of Revelation. Chapter 16, verse 16, we read, Then they gathered the kings together in the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now, you all know that in our society, in our media, in our culture, they love to use words like Armageddon, Gog and Magog, and Apocalypse Now, and and so on. It's a pile of nonsense. I have no idea what they're talking about. First of all, Armageddon. Armageddon is a Hebrew word. Literally in Hebrew, it is Har-Megiddo. Megiddo is a valley or a plain in Israel, and Har is the mountain looking down on the plain. Israel is a very mountainous country, inhospitable for, for nations round about. But Megiddo is the one plain, it's the one valley which was a trade route for the nations round about. Egypt went through there, Assyria, Syria. So Megiddo is the place where the world and the church intersect. Now this concept of Armageddon, Armageddon, and Gog and Magog is all meant to, to make us think of the fact that as a church, we are not some isolated community in this world, but we are in the world. We meet with the world. Two civilizations collide. Two kingdoms meet in Armageddon. In any place in the world where the church is, it meets there the world and its culture, and there's mounting hostility against the church. But our text adds that the church is the camp of God. It is a city which he loves. Very symbolic. We understand that the church is not a camp. It is not a city because it's not in one place. The church is all over the world. But it's Old Testament imagery. Remember the camp in the wilderness. When Israel went through the wilderness, every night they assembled as a camp. God was in our midst and they were safe. And later the city is where the temple was set up and God dwelt in the midst of the temple, in the city of Jerusalem. And it says, for instance, in Zechariah 2, and Zechariah is also much quoted in the book of Revelation, Jerusalem will be a city without walls, because I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. So what, what we're learning is that wherever the church is in the world, and wherever the church collides With the world, God is there. And he assembles his his people as a camp, as a city that doesn't even need a wall because he has a wall of fire around his people and will always save them and always protect them. So we understand, brothers and sisters, that as church, persecution, attacks by the world are inevitable and they will hasten and they will worsen. We also understand why our Lord Jesus Christ is doing this. But we also understand that the church is the apple of his eye. We are his bride. He said, not one person for whom I shed my blood is going to slip through my fingers and fall into the hands of Satan. I am a wall of fire around my church and I protect them. Now when I let Satan loose near the end, 
And I let him go and he starts to deceive the nations and assemble them in hostility against the church. What I'm going to do is, is I'm still going to keep him on a rope and I will not let him get very far. He said back in Matthew 24, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. So as, as Satan mounts his hostility against the church, and as it looks very bad, then Christ will come quickly on the clouds of heaven, and he will cut the enemy down, and he will save his church and protect all of us. As we read in our text, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them. What is important to understand here, brothers and sisters, is that when the end comes and our Lord Jesus Christ returns and cuts the enemy down, he does it. Not us. Jesus Christ does it. When the world mounts in hostility against us, when persecution becomes more and more severe, We do not defend ourselves, but our Lord Jesus Christ defends us. You see, any idea that the church has to use physical or financial or emotional weaponry against the world is unbiblical. If you think that you can withdraw into a camp and buy a bunch of guns and be ready for for a siege against the world, that is not what our Lord Jesus Christ taught us. He says you stand in the mainstream of life and you be a light to the world around, uh, around you. You don't need a gun. You don't need a knife. You don't need muscles. You don't need a fist. Because to fight for me is not by physically attacking the world, but it's denying yourself, taking up your cross and following me. Be obedient to me and walk in my ways. And think, for instance, brothers and sisters, Satan is is always out to deceive us. And one of the ways he's very good at doing that is to draw us, to seduce us into some form of enslavement to sin. People get caught up in addiction to the bottle, hooked on drugs, caught up in pornography or gambling. But if we get on our knees before our Lord Jesus Christ and say, Lord, please help me. Wash away my sins. Help me to fight against this terrible slavery in my life. And our Lord Jesus Christ helps us to rise and to fight against that temptation in our life so that we say yes to Jesus and no to Satan. Then he is defeated. One little word shall fell him, and that is the word no. You want to fight? You want to take up your cross and follow Jesus? You want to put on the armor? Good. But you fight by saying no to Satan and his temptation and yes to Jesus to obey him, to give your life in holiness to him and be a light to the world around us. We understand, brothers and sisters, that there are all kinds of things going on around us which we would love to see changed, which we love to, to improve. And to a large degree, it's not going to happen. It's going to be very difficult to ever take the government of Canada or the government of the United States and turn it back into a a Christian government which lives by the Ten Commandments and the principles of God's Word. We'll, We'll struggle for that and strive for that. Humanly speaking, it doesn't look like it's going to happen. Do you really think that in our society we're going to put an end to abortion? 
or bring back capital punishment or change the laws regarding marriage and divorce. We'd like to, and we'll work for that, and we'll pray for that, and maybe it will happen. We also understand that to a large extent, our world will get worse. And we do not take a gun to do anything about it. You do not stand outside an abortion clinic and say, the law doesn't do anything, the government doesn't do anything, so I'm going to shoot an abortion doctor. We have not got that right. And that is wrong. And if you don't like what the government is doing, there is no way we're going to get an army and attack the parliament, burn down the buildings. That is not the way. The way of victory, the way of the coming of the kingdom of heaven, is that we speak clearly, that we stand up for Jesus, we're a light to the world around us, and we pray, Jesus Christ, your kingdom come. Christ will come. He will judge. He will put an end to all sin and evil and misery. He will put an end to it and bring about an everlasting separation between those who believe in him and who do not. That brings us to our final point and what we read in verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and false prophet have been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, the reference there to the beast and the false prophet, we know very well what it's talking about, because if you read the previous chapters, you read how they have been dealt with. Jesus has taken the beast from the sea, political power, and dealt with it. He has dealt with the beast from the earth, from the dry land, who's also known as the false prophet, as media and culture, the whole deception of our age. He has gathered them, thrown them into the lake of burning sulfur, Now comes the devil. But do not think that these events are separated from each other so that it is a different point in history. You see, our Lord Jesus Christ is only going to come once. And he will judge the world once. The beast, the false prophet, the devil, it will be at the same time that they are caught up, judged, and thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. The reason that these are separated is our Lord Jesus Christ shows in detail how every enemy of the church, Jesus Christ takes that enemy, we see a very graphic picture of it, and a certain description of how that enemy is overpowered and done away with, so it will never harm us again. These passages all occur at the same time. But Satan has been saved for the last. It is a case of the Holy Spirit saying, worst for last. Satan is our biggest enemy. He's the one who deceived Adam and Eve. He's the one who stood face to face with Jesus trying to tempt him and to deny the Father and and obedience to the Father. He is our greatest enemy and he is now being dealt with here in this final passage before Revelation describes the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. Now, brothers and sisters, when we look at how Jesus Christ deals with the devil, we say to ourselves, you know, It's never been an issue. From the day that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he broke the power of Satan. He crushed his head. He has a wound. And he has bound him for a thousand years. And then it is Jesus who releases Satan at the end for a little while to do the work that Jesus wants him to do. 
But as Jesus and as Satan now assembles the world against the church, Jesus Christ down, comes down from heaven. And what do you read? A big battle scene? People dropping like flies left, right, and center? <laughs> you read nothing. Poof! And it's all over. Here's Satan with this massive army. Hostility against the church. Jesus comes down and poof! It's all over. Satan is finished. Fire comes down and he is thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and false prophet are and they all together will be tormented day and night forever. It is a non-issue. Our Lord Jesus Christ is King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the devil. Jesus Christ has got his sights on him and when Jesus Christ is good and ready, he's going to come down and it's over for Satan and over for all his agenda and every hostility he has ever mounted against Christ and against his church. In fact, Satan is going down to the lake of burning sulfur. That's another word for hell itself. And brothers and sisters, don't you dare, don't you dare try to minimize or to paint some sort of pretty picture about hell as if it's not as bad as it seems. Because hell is a real place. And it is an eternal place. In Hebrew, it's called Gehenna. It's the place where the, the worm doesn't stop eating and the, and the fire doesn't stop burning. Hell is a place where the devil and his demons and every unbeliever will be thrown and they will be tormented day and night eternally. Because God will not be there in his love and grace and mercy. And the Holy Spirit will not work there causing people to be born again so that, that people can learn to love each other and get along. Without God's love, without mercy, without the Word of God, without the Holy Spirit, people are condemned to spend eternity being inclined by nature to hate God and to hate their neighbor. It is a horrible, terrifying image. And it will go on forever. What does that now say to you, my brother, my sister? When you hear what's going to happen, not just to the devil, but to every unbeliever, do you not have pity in your heart? Do you not have a feeling for the world round about? Jesus is not here yet. People are not thrown into hell yet. There, there's time. There's opportunity. You've all got people in your life, whether it's at school or work at your neighborhood, people who do not believe in Jesus Christ. Seize the day, please. Grasp the opportunity. How fantastic it will be for you if you, by the grace of God, would be allowed to lead one person from the open doors of hell to share with you faith in Jesus Christ and to spend eternity living to the praise and the glory of God. As long as there's life, and as long as you've got life, you have opportunity to share the gospel. Let's take that seriously and do something about it. The other thing that we realize so clearly from this passage is that we need to realize that we are living in a very seductive, deceptive, and dangerous world. Do you know what's going on? Are you reading the papers? Do you follow the news? Do you read some good magazines? Do you know what kind of things 
are attacking your teenage children? Do you know what kind of things you're really watching on TV? You watch Oprah? You think that's a nice, sweet show to, to, to watch? It's about literature and lifestyle issues? Do you realize you're being seduced by the New Age movement? And to, to melt God down till, till He's almost nothing at all? Do you know how you're being tempted? And do you stand on guard? And each one of us personally... We understand what our text is saying. Jesus Christ draws the line in the sand. And he stands before you and says, Is it absolutely clear in your mind where you stand in relationship to me? You do not have some sort of membership card that says, Look, I belong to the Emmanuel Canadian Reformed Church. That's a ticket into heaven, isn't it? Well, I give my my money to to Christian education. That's good for something, isn't it? Those things are are very good. We need to belong to the church. We we, we need to be involved in Christian education. That's not what Jesus Christ is going to look at. He says, no, 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 no. I'm looking in your heart. Where are you in your heart? Do you believe in me as your Lord and Savior? Do you deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me? And are you a light to the world around you? If, says Jesus, if I would come today and I could, will you stand there and shout joyfully and with rapture, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I'm ready for you. Amen.